Coming up, Cybercast Oregon, a podcast about the ins and outs of technology security, explored through personal stories, how-to guides, and expert advice. Today's show, understanding how hackers, the good and the bad, fit into the cybersecurity puzzle. We see the impact of hackers behind every data breach, ransomware attack, and phishing attempt. But they're also the first to find system weaknesses, report defense failures, and alert companies of programming glitches. Hackers are a mixed bag of characters who are savvy in cyberspace, with many deft at staying in the shadows and hiding behind screens. But with our personal and professional lives migrating to online spaces, it's more important to stop and ask why hackers hack. And if they can crack open the internet, are they also willing to save it? Great questions, and we have answers. This is Cybercast Oregon on Portland Radio Project. This is Cybercast Oregon. I'm your host, Kedma O, oh, the Innovation Director at the Small Business Development Center here in Oregon. Let me begin by stating the obvious. Behind every cybercrime are hackers. We know this, but what we do not know is about those hackers. Now, a quick online search would give you the stock image of a menacing figure in a hoodie poised over a keyboard. But if we shine the light in those dark basements and throw back the hood, who would we find? On today's episode, we're going to get familiar with the people, groups, and countries behind cybersecurity attacks. So let me welcome to the show our guest experts. First, I'll start with Ken Weston. He's a security researcher with expertise in privacy, surveillance, technologies, and product development. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. And Shauna Turner, an IT professional with a strong software background and experience in security methods, techniques, and technologies. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm going to start with Ken. If you want to um, just share a little bit about you and the work you do, and how about you share one situation where maybe you were actually attacked. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, so I, I've been uh, involved in uh, technology and security for the last 15 years or so. Actually, I founded a technology company. I was uh, using basic methods that hackers were using to actually um, help recover stolen devices, right? So basically like a, like a Trojan, right? It would activate web cameras, get location from Wi-Fi networks, that sort of thing. So in terms of actually being attacked, <laughs> Now I actually help a lot of organizations, actually a lot of the Fortune 500 companies, help them protect their networks. I deal a lot more with advanced threats, so I actually actually see some of the, the data sources and actually see sort of the results of some of these actual attacks. So I wouldn't necessarily say I've been attacked myself, but I've seen what happens with organizations when they do get attacked. I mean, it can be devastating, right? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times it can be you know, stealing of uh, personal information of customers, but nowadays it's even worse than that. It's actually destroying systems where you can actually bring a factory down, for example, right, mm -hmm. for, for weeks, and that can cost millions of dollars. 
And also, I would say confidence in the corporation. I've seen a lot of that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when we start dealing with issues of privacy and things like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a real challenge. Well, thank you. So, Shauna, a little bit about you and uh, same question, just your background and have you ever been in a situation where you were personally attacked? So, my background is that, as we mentioned, I do a lot of software. That's where I've come from. And I fell into security, quite literally fell into security and discovered that I loved it because there was that aspect of helping people be more secure. And it was an area that felt like there was a lot of room for improvement, opportunity that you could be in. In terms of being attacked, I've been part of organizations that have been attacked. As a person, we all get kind of micro attacks on a regular basis. There are statistics, which I'm not going to quote because they're dreadful insomnia cures, but the, there, how many people get phone calls from phone numbers you don't know? And now you're getting phone calls from phone numbers you don't know that are 503, and those are typically some kind of phishing attack. So it happens all the time, but most people don't even, you just don't think about it. You just keep moving on with your life. Absolutely. I totally agree. Well, let me throw, let's start in with some questions. I'll, I'll uh, throw it out to Ken. First of all, how would you define a hacker? So um, just break down a little bit on the definition and also uh, any assumptions on them. Are they all criminals or can you be a good hacker? Yeah, I kind of uh, feel like I am a hacker, so hopefully Uh-oh. that doesn't mean we're all we're all bad. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a lot of that has been lost in translation, you know, thanks to uh, a lot of the movies and things like that, right? So we we sort of uh, see the hacker as this, you know, hooded, you know, wearing a hoodie, you know, in their basement, and you know, that's actually very far from the truth. A lot of times hackers are people that basically think a little bit differently, right? Especially when it doesn't necessarily have to be about technology, but looking at the ways that technology or tools can be used in, in creative ways, right? So I actually kind of classify hacking as creative, being a creative technologist in a lot of ways, right? Actually ab- applying creative um, methods to, uh, to solving problems with technology. Excellent. And if I were to unpack that a little bit, we still use that term. How many websites market themselves as 15 best life hacks. <laughs> Sign up right here. So the idea that hacking is a bad thing is is more complicated than that. And some of it's age. Ken and I are kind of similar in age. And when we started playing with computers, hacking was meant to be a good thing. It was meant to be someone that was trying to understand how something worked to make it faster or more efficient or better or do cool things. And it's only as the visibility of criminal activity associated with computers has really risen. And when you're a newspaper person trying to explain bad things happening, the term hacker suddenly becomes, oh, my God, it's the new boogeyman. Mm -hmm. You're now a hacker in your hoodie in a basement. But, you know, to your point, it's I, I smile at that so much because we're in we're in the studio right now. And what if I wanted to really be a criminal hacker, I'd be so good at it for so many reasons. First of all, I hold three passports. Right. So I can really go in and out as far as I care. Um, I am from the Middle East where we are trained in many ways to understand hacking. Uh, I'm very persuasive, so I'd probably do very well with social engineering. And I think that there is a level of intelligence that comes with hacking. So one of the things I want to make sure that we're clear on is maybe we want to get that myth the way that it is that hoodie, that it is that person in the basement, because I would presume, correct me if I'm wrong, that it crosses all lines, right? And all age brackets and all wardrobe choices. (laughs) 
Yeah. yeah, it's always funny, though. I mean, people always say there's, uh, you know, ethical hacking, right? Yes. Uh, that's that's a weird thing for me. It's like it's like an ethical politician, right? right. It's like, do you really need to define it, right? So um, that's kind of an interesting term. But. but actually, you did call it out. So, I mean, ethical hacking, I mean, to your point, you are trying to, you're the good guys. Right. Although not everyone views you that way. And that's part of the challenge when you start talking about what is a hacker and are they a white hat or a gray hat or a yes. black hat. Some of that depends on point of view, much like Ken's comment on politicians, whether they're good for you or bad for you is all about where you're standing. And whether they're hacking you. Right. I got it. So, so walk me through, um, when, was there a point that you're aware of where hacking actually moved into criminal activity? Because my understanding is originally hackers came from the MIT world and then moved in. So when when did we start noticing this criminal activity? I don't remember seeing it this prevalent. Well, so 20- criminal activity is a hard definition. Criminal activity usually means you violated a law. Mm-hmm. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is way later than when people were doing things on computers that other people deemed to be malicious. So calling it criminal makes it hard for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is that, which is that the CFAA, the Criminal Fraud and Abuse Act, has a distinct timeline in which the federal government says, if you're doing, you're crossing interstate boundaries and Mm -hmm. you're doing something on someone else's computer that theoretically has something to do with interstate commerce, however I want to define that, then I'm going to say that you broke a law. Up until that point, like the MIT thing, you're spreading a worm. Are you breaking a law? No, you're a nuisance. Got it. Yeah, and I think that's also, um, you know, technology doesn't really, you know, drive this. I think it's an evolution of human nature, right? Whenever there's any sort of aspect or something new, there's always going to be a criminal component to it. Yeah. I think it's just the the way that the humans are sort of wired, right? You're always going to have the dark side of, of any any new technology that, that comes out. Yeah. There's kind of a joke that, like, if you have any three humans, somebody's working the angles. Right. And so if you add a computer in there, now I have a whole new set of angles I get to work. Right. You know, and, and I want to flip this. Is there any piece of this whole image of hacking that is kind of exciting? I'm going to let me tell you what I mean. When I was growing up, I grew up in New York. I kind of like the mafia for some reason. I don't know why, but they were like considered kind of cool because they were doing things. I mean, I know. Yes. They were glamorous. So is there a glamorous part to the hacking? Can you kind of talk to us about what that is? Because we don't want to admit it, but then there's a part of us that looks to that. So what's your thoughts? I think there's a, a fine line between cop and criminal. Right. It requires that sort of mindset. Right. Especially when you're dealing with uh, being defensive on security, you have to have that offensive mindset as well. That's kind of what actually got me into this tool is I was actually looking at a lot of tools that were being used to hack internal networks using flash drives. And I actually started downloading those tools and actually started writing my own. And as a result of that, I actually built a product, again, that would help, you know, help people actually recover stolen devices and things like that. So. There are ways you can use some of those technologies to, for, for good as well. And I think we've seen a lot of examples of that. And the glamour aspect is real. So if you look at Kevin Mitnick, it's not like he's broke doing his speeches. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a famous hacker. Yes. And then you add in TV shows like Mr. Robot. Yes. Happen to love the show to death, but you have a TV show about, well, a gentleman in a hoodie on a computer. So it, it, there is an element of glamour, but there's also an element of glamour in what attracts you. So Ken's comment about flash drives, 
is it interesting to you to try and get someone to do something they shouldn't do? Is it interesting to you to make a computer do something it shouldn't do? That can feel pretty glamorous. And then if you're money oriented, oh, heavens, computers have so much access and so much interrelation with money. Absolutely. And you brought up something, uh, Shauna, a while back. You talked about gray hat and black hat, but for the audience, can we go and, and just sort of unpack that so people understand you know, what is the difference between the black, the gray and the white? And can you interchange? Like can Ken be go from a white hat to a gray hat to a black hat? Or is it you're and just all the way hat. back out? <laughs> <laughs> Ken, you want to take a stab? At yeah, the I don't book? think you'd actually someone would actually admit that they're a black hat. Right. And at least not <laughs> publicly. Right. So, um, yeah, I kind of consider myself more a gray hat because I do uh, leverage some of the tools. But I think it really comes down to intent. Um, Black Hat's going to be more focused on criminal activity, and it's usually generating income, right, through illicit means, right? That's the goal. Either stealing uh, credit cards, um, you know, stealing personal information and selling it. Um, that's really the goal there. Uh, Gray Hat is usually a little bit more nebulous. You're maybe even finding vulnerabilities in products and things like that. You may be getting paid for that, like a bug bounty type of program, but you're not necessarily, you know, going full on criminal stealing, using that vulnerability to, you know, target systems and steal data. Whereas the white hat hacker is going to be someone who may be trained in defensive tools and things like that, but they're going to be doing more penetration testing and things Mm -hmm. like that, where they're actually paid to try to infiltrate a particular network, right, with permission. With permission. And can you give a quick example on the gray hat? Because you mentioned about looking at vulnerabilities, but not necessarily. Can you just give an example? Yeah, there's a lot of that where we're actually looking at uh, vulnerabilities, maybe in operating systems or applications and probing networks, right? So we may not necessarily be doing something that's criminal, but we're curious, right? We're, we're ripping something apart to see how it may break, right? So that can be classified generally as gray hat because especially if I announce a vulnerability, maybe if I don't go through responsible disclosure and I announce there's this major vulnerability in Windows, for example, or and I maybe mm. publish that particular exploit, I'm not actually committing a crime myself, but other people might download those particular exploits and commit a crime. And that whole white hat, gray hat line gets real blurry real fast, Right. Because if he did disclose the exploit, who determines whether or not he, di- he disclosed it ethically or not? Right. So some companies are not yet mature enough to have bug bounties. And so you find a vulnerability, you try and reach out to the company. The company may or may not choose to respond to you. Look at the guy who did the Panera Bread n- notification. I was just Lillahan, thinking that. Exactly. Right? They thought he was a scam artist. And so they basically blew him off for eight months. He was trying to do the white thing. By his standards, he was probably a white hat hacker. He was trying. He found a vulnerability. He notified the company. He tried to get them to, like, solve the problem, and then they didn't do anything with it. From the company's perspective, they did not ask for his feedback. They didn't have a bug bounty program. Is he a gray hat or a black hat? Gray. It's a really good question from right? their perspective. Well, at and no? remember that lawsuit where at and was bleeding data? Yeah. And people notified AT&T and AT&T filed a lawsuit against them, which implies that AT&T's perspective was that people gating data and providing feedback on the security of their website in an unsolicited manner is black hat. From their perspective, they were white to gray. Most hackers will self-describe as gray. Yeah, black and white and 50 shades of gray. So then they're held liable. Potentially, depending on what state you're in and who you tangle with. Right. And so speaking on that, you know, when you're interchanging between the work you're doing 
um, and I think about all these hackers, and, and you mentioned you didn't want to say the statistics. I do know that I've read a statistic uh, just because we work with small businesses. 60% of businesses that are compromised go out of business. They cannot afford to sustain because of the severity of the data breach financially. What is our government doing about it? <laughs> that is a hard one because to get to what the government's doing about it, you have to get to what is, what is the moral association with this stuff and how does that translate into law and what do you need to do? And that anytime you start talking morals, you're in for a good, long, complicated conversation. Right. But is that part of ethical hacking? Yeah, that's a tough one. I think also you got to think about, too, it's not just our government, but it's also collaboration with other governments. Like a lot of times, um, the hackers aren't necessarily in our own country, right? That's kind of the, the challenge with uh, cybersecurity is that people can be on the other side of the world, right? And they're able to uh, commit these types of crimes. So you have to have collaboration between governments. And you'll actually find a lot of criminal hacking groups, very organized criminal mm -hmm. groups in Russia and Eastern Europe, they're not necessarily going to be, be you know, extradited to the U.S. And a lot of times they're actually operating pretty much with impunity. As long as they're targeting U.S., they're not targeting Russian companies. Um, they pretty much have uh, you know, free reign to do what they like. But that goes back to what, what is a country deemed to be illegal, right? And particularly if you are a country that maybe isn't a fan of the other country that's being hacked, is that, is that illegal? Is that unethical? Is it immoral? And then you add in the idea that nation states like to use this as well. So plausible deniability by having a healthy set of hackers in your country. If you are doing nation state activity, how do you find the needle in the haystack? Now, I love this, this question. And I'm smiling because I feel like I'm on jeopardy. Like I'll offer an answer and then there's all these questions, right? Because you're right. We're, we're trying to discover it. So one, one last thought around that, because there are some people that will argue that hackers... You know, there's a benefit to them, right? There's a benefit to maybe keeping the cyber safe safer. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Right? Exactly. And the more power, the better. So what's your weight on that? I mean, do you think that it's, it's better to have more hackers sort of paying attention and yeah, I think every new, um, you know, every new strain of ransomware that we see, every new vulnerability that gets released. Um, and it makes us more secure over time. So that is sort of the silver lining. I also think there's a lot more awareness around security. Um, when you look at, you know, um, some of the things that are happening too with some companies with regards to privacy as well, people are actually starting to pay attention, right? Now they're actually looking at the permissions on applications. They're actually reading um, the end user license agreements and things like that, right? So uh, what information are you collecting about me? What happens if you do get hacked? How can that information be used against me, right? So I think there is this sort of awareness that's coming out as a result of this. And I would identify that one of the biggest things, the reason you have open source and crowdsourcing is that more eyes are always going to do a better job finding things. So if you can figure out how to harness the fact that people have these skills and are interested in this kind of capability, you have the opportunity to really improve your game as an enterprise particularly. That's what bug bounties exist for is to kind of encourage you to help them be better. I love this. So it's obvious that the hacker mold is not one size fits all and the impact and scope of these diverse actors is varied. Stay with us. We'll talk motive, trends and responsibility right after the break.
support for Cybercast Oregon comes from Mount Hood Community College Small Business Development Center, working with entrepreneurs to create, grow, and protect successful businesses. Learn more at mhcc.edu sbdc. Welcome back. I am Kedma O, your host on Cybercast Oregon, and today we're learning about the chief troublemakers of the cybersphere, hackers. Rejoining us now on the show to help us understand why hackers hack and why cybercrime is such a lucrative temptation are two security experts, Ken Weston and Shauna Turner. Glad to have you guys back. Well, let's continue. Um, I know we've been talking about black hat, white hat, gray hat. Let's dive in and look at the gray areas of cyber responsibility. You know, let's think about, you know, the idea of selling data um, or lying about privacy practices or, you know, trying to fit within the hacker landscape. So there's a lot of question about the gray area. So could you share a little insight on that? So I've done a lot of investigations where I actually cyberstalk criminals, and I leveraged a lot of open source data sources to do that. Data that was embedded in images, for example, that people didn't know actually embedded location information or serial numbers of cameras, things like that. And when we actually look at a lot of the data that's generated, there's things that we have control over, like data that we actually create. We Maybe we can delete an email or something on our calendar, and we feel we have control of that data. Then you have a next layer of data where you actually have data that's generated for you. So when you're making an online reservation for your uh, flights, for example, right? Then from that, you also have information that actually gets generated about you, right? You don't necessarily um, have any control of that. And then you have the next layer of data, what I call boogie data. And that's information where you actually start to look at maybe data that has been compromised or breached or that was collected that you weren't aware of, right? Um, and then somehow that gets compromised or it gets aggregated and, and correlated with other data sources as well. And that's where we can actually start to develop a very rich profile of a particular individual. And that's really the scary thing that we're actually going to be seeing, I think, over the next few years is these sort of really large data sets where we can actually have this very rich profile of a particular individual if we want to and we're willing to pay the right price for it. Wow. What would that look like? So what does that rich profile look like? Could, would, could they potentially profile someone like me? Absolutely. Or? Everything about you. Let's say, you know, you use Google and you have an email account. Even if you delete your email on your phone, it went through a mail server if you sent it. So there's a record of that. If you're on Google, you probably have a profile. That profile may or may not have a real life picture of you. Now I have your name. I have your picture. I have your geolocation. If you are into sports, you probably use something that does GPS tracking. So now I have a geolocation and I have patterns. Do you run three days a week? Do I know where you run three days a week? And then we talk about your social. Do you have a Twitter? Do you have a Snapchat? Do you have an Instagram? All this data, not only to Ken's geo, it's going to tell me your likes, your interests, and to your comment that you could have been a great hacker. Imagine what I can do if I know enough about you to know exactly what you like to do, where you like to be, how you like to be seen, what you think your best attributes are, all your political information, any religious affiliation. I can do quite a bit of damage with that. And it's not hard to aggregate all that data. And that's to Ken's point that it's getting richer and richer. All these sources aggregate more and more data and you can traverse all of these sources. Yeah, yeah, I did an investigation with, uh, and I worked collaborating with the FBI. And that's one thing they told me was like, people think that we're, collecting all this information about people we have access to. And he goes, that's further from the truth. There's regulations and things and laws that actually protect them from collecting certain types of information. What he said is what we can do is we go to companies 
maybe a Google, for example, and we get information from them because they're harvesting all this information. So really the greatest threat almost in a lot of ways is the marketing department. And I mean, there's a reason there's a quote. There's been a quote in the technology industry for ages, which is if the product is free, you, you and your data are the product. And every one of those companies that we think of as being thought leaders in this space of big data games and information, all of them have vast, vast piles of data about you. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is if I was listening to this incredible podcast is how do I protect myself? <laughs> well, I think, I think we're starting to see that now. A lot of times, you know, privacy is dead in a lot of ways. Like a lot of our information, again, we don't necessarily have control of it, right? So right. if information is already out there, if the government's moving everything to, to the digital world, um, then there are certain things that we, you know, we don't have control over that. Um, but there are things we do have control over, right? We can look at permissions of applications. We can maybe minimize our social footprint. We can uh, restrict what we share. I just assume anything I share on any sort of social network is going to be made public eventually, right? It's just a matter of time. And then there's, there, looping back to your question about the government side of things, mm -hmm. there are efforts. Like if you look at the European Union and the GDPR initiative, there's a great deal where they are requiring companies to allow you to see the data they've gathered on you and either edit or delete or transfer it. And that gives certain users more power over what exists and certainly to make sure it's not incorrect. You know, if someone who has the same name as you commits a crime and somehow it gets tagged to you, you probably want to be able to fix that. That particular type of legislation, while the U.S. is a little harder to get it rolling, is you're starting to see more and more conversation about protecting privacy from a federal or international standpoint. But to your point, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, let's say I'm a business owner and I have a situation and someone's hacked into me. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know where the enforcement is. Do I pick up the phone and call the police? Do I pick up the phone and call the FBI? Do I pick up the phone and call a security analyst? So the funny part is I almost feel like there's an, there's an axiom in security that is the right answer to every question is it depends. Okay. <laughs> so ransomware, if you get hit with ransomware, which is one of the most common things that happens these days, it's a, a, to the point that FBI and a bunch of international police officers have put together web pages about ransomware. They will all try and give you advice. They will all tell you not to pay the ransom. They will all try and set you up so in the future, bad things won't happen to you. However, you'll note that the key phrase, as I said, was in the future, because if you don't pay the ransom, you don't get the data back. And there have wow. been incidences of even hospitals paying the ransom to get their data back to keep operations up and running. So your ability to provide enforcement, is it illegal? What is the moral perspective? Did you do something less than stellar? I, and, yeah. And I think, yeah, on, on that point, too, is, again, a lot of times, you know, the, the hackers also hide their tracks. Right. So mm. um, they, they leverage Bitcoin, you know, and it went ransomware to, to hide pseudo anonymous currency. You also find that they use proxies and things like that. So a lot of times, even when you have the logs and you're investigating something like that, you don't necessarily have a smoking gun. Right. You don't necessarily right. have the evidence to actually go and find the people that are responsible. Well, yeah. And, and that's ransomware in particular. If we're talking something more complicated like espionage, it's not like if I steal your watch, your watch is gone. If I steal all your intellectual property, guess what? You still have a copy. Right. And there used to be a very big trend in reporting how long companies had been breached before they were notified by someone else. You know, but I, I, I hear this a lot, and, and I especially because we speak to so many small businesses. As they're listening to this, you mentioned the hospital, we mentioned Panera Bread. 
I would presume that there's a fair amount of people listening to this to say, so what? I'm a small business. It's not going to affect me. I've got 50 employees. Who really needs to hack me? So should they care? Absolutely. Anything you sell means you have value. This is where we know that some percentage of humans are wired to uh, acquire value through less than their own hard work. So if you've got 50 employees, you have value. Mm -hmm. Somebody's going to see that value and want it. Mm -hmm. And sadly, if you have 50 employees, that probably means you don't have an unlimited cybersecurity budget. So you probably don't have Ken or me on staff. (laughs) And there's also a cost associated with that, too. I mean, you look at, you know, ransomware, that's one type. Another thing that's becoming very common is crypto jacking. So maybe you have a cloud-based infrastructure. If all of a sudden someone's using that to mine cryptocurrencies, that's going to have an added cost to you, right? If you're not monitoring that that type of thing and also have an impact on your website performance, right? If they someone hits your website, then they're running JavaScript that's running this type of software as well. And it has an impact on your end users. And in the end, that's going to affect your bottom line. And it could even take you, you know, you get blacklisted. Right. It's another common problem, particularly if we get some kind of script running where we're using it for a DDoS or crypto mining. You as a website could get blacklisted. And if you're a 50 person company, do you know how to fix that? Yeah. And also, I think timing. So if we had one of you on staff, how quickly could you figure out that there has been a breach? Is this minutes, seconds, Hours again. That that it depends. <laughs> I feel like I'm talking to the weather people. Uh, yeah, if, well, <laughs> when there is a there's a compromise. Uh, you know, the first thing the FBI or anyone's going to ask you is show me your log. If you don't have the logs, you don't have the telemetry in place. I'm not going to be able to tell you anything unless I have that information. And then you have to step back. Okay, well, do all of my computers have the same timestamp? And if they don't, how do I make those logs tell me a story that makes sense in chronological order? Do I have maintained hygiene on my computers? It's not really a security thing to do patching, but it's, it's a security thing. Mm-hmm. So if you're patching your computers, you, re- you raise the barrier to entry. It's not directly that you've applied or hired a security person. You're, you're doing good hygiene. Just like brushing your teeth does not guarantee you won't get a cavity, but it's sure good preventive maintenance. Agreed. Agreed. So I'm going to, I'm going to, ask an interesting question. From a technical standpoint, do you believe breaking into cyber systems is actually easier than defending them? Very much so. um, When you're defending, you only have to, I mean, the hacker only has to get it right once, right? Whereas you're defending, um, it's (laughs) it's a bigger challenge and it's not just technical. A lot of times when I talk to businesses, it's, it's issues with regards to the business itself, not having the proper funding, not having the right people on their team, it's a personnel issue. You have to have the, the people process and the technology in place. And that's really a challenge, right? It's not just the, the technical skills. It's also that whole business process as well. And if you think about it, like if I put this as a, as a physical world metaphor, is it easier to break into a house that has 30 windows and 15 doors or to a house that only has one door? Most businesses create lots and lots and lots of internet points, which means that the people trying to defend it have to protect all 30 windows and 15 doors. Wow. And so depending on your knowledge and expertise in hacking, would it be fair to say if you were really trained that you could pretty much hack almost any company or are there? Well, it goes back to the definition of hacking. Mm -hmm. The weakest link is usually the humans. Got it. So we go back to the Kevin Mitnick and the phishing capabilities. That has been one of the most common ways to get into even fairly high secure companies is to go after the humans 
and go back to the fact that we were saying that all these humans, we have this lovely data trail about us that allows us to be very, very specifically targeted. And to, and to your point, so I was having a recent conversation with a good colleague of mine about the idea of automation. And his conversation back to me is, it's really more about orchestration. How do you orchestrate everything so it works together? So when you think about social engineering, what part is necessary for people to understand? Is there, there has to be constant training? Because I hear so many people saying, well, we're going to automate. We're going to make sure all the systems. And then they, there's no conversation about the staff. That's actually one of those things where they, a, n- a number of companies are trying to get into training the human, securing the human, and they will point out that if you train your humans, the phishing capabilities go way down because humans are capable of becoming suspicious. It's like the idea that if you live in the country, you might not lock your doors, but if you live in the inner city, you're, you've got your eyes wide open and you probably have a flashlight on you. You know, you teach people that suddenly they're in the equivalent of a dark alleyway of the internet, they are more likely to be paying attention and choose not to make less than stellar choices. Yeah, I actually got uh, the opportunity to actually fish a company here locally, and I did it on a a KGW. Oh, Um, wow. It was actually a company. They had just gone through phishing training. So I had, I, I, we did two different campaigns. Uh, one was a uh, free burrito at a local new food truck, oh my God. right? Um, and about 30% of the people clicked on that link because they wanted a free burrito. Oh my God. Um, and the next one, I actually registered a domain that looks similar to theirs. And I said it was from the IT department. Everyone needs to log in with your admin credential or your, your mm-hmm. uh, enterprise credentials and update the directory. And 60% of the people <gasps> actually clicked. About 40% started actually typing something, but I didn't log any of that information, of course, for, wow. for again, ethical hacking. Um, but, you know, it really shows that, you know, people will fall for these sorts of things. And there's different levels, right? If I want to actually, you know, target someone, I can register a domain that looks similar. If I compromise the system inside the network, and I can actually send emails that look like it's coming from the CEO. Yes. Um, so there's, again, there's multiple levels here. Wow. And on the positive side, you can do this. <laughs> is there to a your, positive side? There is a positive side. You can actually <laughs> fish your own employees. There are a number of companies that let you do that yeah. so that you can start training, training the muscle to actually understand what fishing most likely looks like. Now, keep in mind, there are limits to how far you can take this. You can, it's, it's like physical security. You can raise the barrier to entry. You probably cannot fully eliminate. Someone with infinite time, infinite resources, and infinite money is still going to get in, but you're going to reduce it from all the people that are just walking by and jimmying the door handle. So why do you believe then cybercrime is such an issue? Is it regulation? Is it enforcement? Is it decentralization? Is it altogether everything? Why such a big problem? And is it like this in every country or only in the U.S.? In some countries, it's worse. (laughs) It's, It's about money. Right. If, if you take the profit out of it, you're going to see a decrease in, in hacking. Right. If you look at sort of how it's evolved. Right. We saw a, a few years back, a lot of point of sale networks were getting compromised. Right. Uh, credit cards were being stolen. And it wasn't until we actually started rolling out the, the chip and pin cards. We started actually fighting that and the value of those cards got reduced. But then we saw ransomware, right? So that's another way that they can monetize it. And now we're seeing another evolution with crypto jacking, right? There's a way to, to generate currency from that as well. So I always look at the intent and I always follow the money. Um, and that's, that's usually where it's going to start. And when you say the money, how much money are we talking? Is this like a $50,000 a year salary? or are Oh, we ta- no. <laughs> I, I just did, uh, actually, I did a presentation at a security conference where it was this 
Um, it, it was a group of hackers and white-collar criminals that were doing trading based on non-public information. They generated over $30 million, right? And they did this over the course of three to four years. And then uh, law enforcement got lucky. They actually were investigating this one hacker in the Ukraine uh, for stolen credit cards. But they went in and then they un unveiled this larger uh, conspiracy, basically, where they were trading on non-public information. They were hacking into news wires. They were getting earnings reports before anyone else. And then they would, uh, these traders actually in the U.S. were trading on that information. And they made tons of money, $30 million. Just so, an example. Now, it all depends on what you're doing. It all depends on the value of the assets you're popping. It all, I mean, there are variables here. We're not saying everybody who gets into hacking is suddenly a billionaire. Uh, there's a, a kind of a vast gap between intro to hacking and you're probably a script kitty and somebody making that kind of money. But that's the big issue here. This, this is why organized crime is on the internet, is there is an awful lot of money on the internet in one, some way, shape or form. So you mentioned motivation for money. What about other motivations? Particularly, what about political agenda? You know, we've heard in the news all this back and forth that the previous, you know, there was some political agenda related um, to some of the people who are in office. Governmental um, meddling. <laughs> so, so, you know, is there other motivations besides money? Absolutely. And you, whether or not you're talking state-sponsored, which is a whole different kettle of fish, because there is state-sponsored stuff. But there's also, go back to the term hacker, some of it was about curiosity. Then there's, there's always the, I hate to say it, it's like old school espionage. Mm -hmm. You are my competitor. You have shiny things. I'd like to get them to market faster than you. And there's as many reasons to be hacking as there are humans engaging in less than stellar behavior. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, too, is you, I, I kind of refer to this more as cyber propaganda, mm. right? They're leveraging a lot of the, the techniques that marketing firms have been using for years to try to get us to buy products, right? Um, and so they're actually having an influence on our behavior as well. So I think that's it's a little bit different. Again, it's not necessarily illegal, right? It's not like the, the hacking when you're stealing credit sure. cards and things like that. But uh, you can, I, I bet you're going to start seeing some regulation around this now. So that does become illegal. And perspective matters. So keep in mind that a number of other countries feel like people are meddling in their elections. So maybe from their perspective, it's fair to meddle back. The U.S. in particular is a commonly identified country who is believed to have their fingers in many pies that <laughs> maybe aren't supposed to be in as That's far right. as the residents are concerned. And so from their perspective, is it is it illegal? Is it unethical? Is it immoral to visit back what was visited on you from your perspective? And historically, attribution was a problem, and may, which is like, who did it? And maybe that's less of an issue now, but there is still some amount of, oh, well, bad things have happened in my country for forever, and we have a cultural thing of, behave, of blaming someone. Mm -hmm. and, and now you have some of the other games. If we were to go to physical war, you have consequences. But cyber feels for most people less real. Agreed. And so there's this perspective that like, I, I can meddle with you and you might not even know it, that it was me and you probably can't prove it. And I can just kind of, just kind of stick it into you a little bit. <laughs> like a video game. <laughs> so does the pro proliferation of hackers have something to do with how well cyberspace is policied? Or is it just the result of the cyber world developing more and more and people are just learning how to navigate? And also, I'm really curious to know, I, and please don't do this at home, but if I decided 
that I wanted to become a hacker. Is there a school? Is there what books? type of hacker do you want to be? I want to become a bad hacker. Then there's well, so that's remember it's all about intent. Right. So the every single tool that can be ah. used for for one side can, can be, be used, used for, for the, the other. other. And routinely, this is why most hackers, Got this is it. why if you ask people what type of hacker are you, almost all of them are going to call themselves gray because some number of the tools are being Understood. used for different intent than originally designed. Yeah, and a lot of the, the tools for hacking too have become commoditized or there's uh, distributions of Linux that are available that have you know, all the hacking tools that you need. There's books. There's all sorts of different um, resources available online for this. There's an entire exploit industry. There are certifications. I have one. I have a, a, a certification in offensive security certified professional where we actually learn how to use these different tools. And actually the, the test itself, you actually have to hack into a network. It's a virtual network that they've set up and you have to a- achieve certain goals. But, you know, the same thing. I could apply that if I had criminal intent. I could target an organization and do mm-hmm. the similar thing. And I'll take a cert uh, from the other side. Sure. I have one for incident handling. Okay, if I know how to handle incident, this probably means I know how to create one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, aside from individual actors, what kind of hacker threats is the world facing, in your opinion? Wow. Big question. Yes. Yeah, I think uh, the biggest one is the amount of information that's being collected about people. I think we're seeing this with, uh, with Facebook and some other social media sites when that information gets compromised. People always ask me, what's the best way to protect a uh, customer's information? And I answer, don't collect it, right? Mm. Collect only the, the amount of information that you actually need for that particular service. But then again, that becomes a challenge. You know, again, if you aren't, if you're not paying for the product, you, you are the product. <laughs> so, you know, if it's a free service, something like that, where they're actually using that information for advertising and that's how they're generating revenue. I think that's a real challenge for us and how we're going to deal with that. GDPR in Europe, that's helping mm-hmm. a, a bit. I'd like to see something like that happen in the U.S. as well. And I would step back and say it's not just people. All sorts of data that historically was never online is online. So you hear a lot more about things like attacks on power grids. And you hear about Internet of Things, which are all these things like refrigerators and toasters that suddenly have an Internet presence and didn't. So as we bring more and more into this digital world and we don't necessarily focus on security as a requirement then it, there's more and more opportunity to make money in the space. And so you're going to continue to see more and more efforts to figure out how to monetize it, probably in ways you did not want. Or we can just create more Ken and Shauna's and uh, really <laughs> save the world. That's my opinion. Um, when we talk about hackers and cybercrime, it's usually accompanied by grim headlines, another company breach, a skewed election, or the loss of personal data. Next segment, we're going to look at the future and ask, can hackers be part of the solution right after the break? Support for Cybercast Oregon comes from Mount Hood Community College Small Business Development Center, working with entrepreneurs to create, grow, and protect successful businesses. Learn more at mhcc.edu sbdc. I'm Kedma O, your host on Cybercast Oregon. Today's show is all about hackers, who they are, how they fit into the cybersecurity discussion. We're going to close out this episode with predictions and possible solutions trying to get our heads around how to policy our cyber lives and how hackers, the good, the bad, fit into the puzzle. Back with us 
Security experts Ken Weston and Shauna Turner, welcome back. Thank you. Thank I, you. I always feel good when they come back. Because <laughs> <laughs> we have these really intense conversations. Well, I want to continue and talk a little bit about the threat criminal hackers pose to cybersecurity. We know it's increasing. Do you ever see it decreasing? There's positive signs about that. I mean, the existence of a concept of GDPR, if you'd said five years ago that the EU would have passed GDPR and it would have had things like right to be forgotten and the ability to see and edit all of your data, people would have been like, yeah, whatever. And now it's real and it's a thing. So people are starting to become aware that there's a problem. And isn't that one of those jokes? Like every 12-step program begins with admitting you have a problem. <laughs> and we, we seem to have figured out that we've got a problem. So that is the biggest positive sign that we could and will likely make traction against cybersecurity threat. I'm a little more pessimistic. My, I, <laughs> Uh-oh. Just, just from the trends that we see, it evolves, right? So as soon as we find one way to protect the data, there's some other sort of threat that, uh, that shows its head. GDPR is great, but a lot of times, too, organizations are compromised and they don't even know it. So... GDPR is not something the hackers are going to be following, right? You can't request the hacker to delete your information, right? So if, uh, if there, I think there's going to be much more, more motivation for hackers to have that information and get access to it. And I'm kind of curious to uh, who they might be selling that information to. Um, it may not just be hackers anymore. They may be uh, selling that to corporations as well. But actually, Shauna, you may be onto something. I mean, what's to say we don't have a hacker's 12-step program, right? So here's my question. What would discourage or disincentivize a hacker? So obviously getting caught. Well, and it depends on what you mean disincentivize a hacker. So for instance, a bug bounty pays you money to report bugs about my company. I want to incentivize you because I want to harden my company. But I might want to disincentivize you from actually breaking my things, which means that's where you start talking about consequence. And what is that? What is the consequence associated with these actions when they're done with bad intent? And part of that means how do you identify intent? That's a fairly hard conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it, too, comes to training youth. Actually, I've been involved with uh, Northwest Cyber Camp uh, here yes. in Portland. Awesome. Doing sessions with them. We're actually going to be doing a hands-on workshop with them uh, as well. And that's something that kids actually get hands-on with some of these tools. And again, it comes down to intent. It's like saying, look, you can actually do, um, you can create your own networks and you can hack it. You can create your own computer and you can hack into that and, and identify vulnerabilities. Um, so there, there are ways that you can do these sorts of things without actually committing crimes. You know, and you mentioned something about the Oregon cyber camp. So do you know, particularly in Oregon, are there any state efforts that are occurring right now to help manage this situation? Is the governor working on something? I know recently the governor had put something into effect legislatively. Yeah, I think a lot of companies are, are working closely with some of our elected officials to deal with some of these issues. A lot of it is more about making resources that are out there more publicly available, at least raising awareness around it. And I think they're also involving a lot more the security companies that are in Oregon which is actually amazing. I'm seeing a lot of uh, security companies actually move research centers here, which has been uh, pretty amazing. Wow. Um, a lot of companies like Silence. I've even seen companies like Salesforce that have security teams out here as well. So I think you're starting to actually develop a, a really nice talent pool here in Oregon, thanks to companies like Nike and uh, other companies as well that are 
bringing people from all over the country. And I would add back to the, the cyber camp concept. One of the biggest things that we're doing that will help us in the future is this idea of funneling money into education, specifically yes. around science, technology, engineering, math. However, cybersecurity falls into that camp. And the more people you have that have skills in those areas, the better this goes. So you have to have a pipeline and funneling money into education has been a high priority everywhere mm -hmm. to identify that there is a shortfall of people with these skills and we're going to need more of them as more of the universe goes online. So there, there are job opportunities to be had and they Tremendous. will be for a long time. That's a point well taken. Tremendous job opportunities. So if you are a company and you get hacked, for the most part, do you have to pay from your own pocket to resolve the problem? Or <clears throat> have you noticed that more and more companies are, are looking to cyber insurance, for example? And is it cost effective if I am a small business, if I have 100 employees or less? You're going to hate us because we're going to say it depends. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> depends. <laughs> because it does. It really does depend. There isn't cyber insurance for all possible ways in which bad things happen. So in some cases, cyber insurance isn't going to have your back. In other cases, cyber insurance might cost you more than fixing the problem out of your own pocket. So, so the answer really is, it depends. In a lot of organizations too, even if you're a small company, there's consultants you can go through services. I've even seen a lot of what's called virtual CISO, where you have someone who is experienced in security that can help do a risk assessment, make recommendations of how to secure that. It's really not that expensive. It's not like you have to hire full-time staff to do that anymore. And there are tons of companies that will do incident handling, incident management for you. And you really can now largely get some security help from people that don't work in your company, depending on the contractual relationships you choose to pursue. You know, without going into any company names, have you worked or uh, been involved personally in a situation where you've walked into an environment and you're like, this is an absolute disaster. I mean, what is going on here? Quite frequently. Yes. Um, I deal a lot, especially with doing uh, machine learning and more advanced data analytics. Sometimes uh, companies will show me, hey, we have this data lake of uh, information we've been collecting for years. And I'll go in and I'll find uh, that there's uh, social security numbers, credit cards, information that's well beyond log retention rates and information they shouldn't be collecting. And that's, that's, that kind of thing really uh, scares me when I see that kind of thing. It just it shows that they are not actually looking at what data they're collecting. If that information does get compromised, the, the risk that it poses to the organization and their customers could be very devastating. And wow. we'll go back to my analogy, my physical analogy of the 30 windows and 15 doors. One of the other things that you run into is companies that have been around for a while have tons and tons of aging infrastructure. And they often keep it long past when it's supported and needed to be end of life, which means it's not getting regular patches which means it can't be updated. In some cases, they can't do anything with it. And those systems seem to have the highest proportionality of, to Ken's point, collecting data tchotchkes that they really shouldn't have, shouldn't need, and they never, ever delete. And, and then when you say, I need to delete this, they're like, I don't know what it's going to do to us, but you really, really shouldn't because we don't know what will go wrong. <laughs> well, that's a good point. So as part of the challenge around cybersecurity just results in the fact that we're trying to adjust to technology, we don't know what to do, so we're afraid of doing something, so we don't do anything, and then you tell us to do something, and we say, but if you pull that, we don't know what it's going to do. So how much of that is really about navigating through this, this maze, and we're moving so quickly? So I'm curious to know, because you're dealing with these companies, how much of it is they're just 
they don't know what to do. There is a lot of that. Although, again, remember, let's talk about physical security in the real world. We all have some common sense rules about locking your doors and closing your windows and having screens that if you look at almost any guidance on how to deal with security in the computer world, there are certain equivalents. Please patch your systems. (laughs) Please, if it doesn't need an internet connection, don't give it one. So there are some some basic rules of basic hygiene that would help a lot of this. And it's, yeah, it is scary, but it's like anything. If I told you you had to become an Olympic javelin star, it's kind of terrifying until you have your first 10,000 hours in, and then it's kind of boring. (laughs) So we can get up this hill. Right. And there are some easy steps to get you started. Think of it like a couch to half marathon plan. The goal is going to be pretty solid, but you don't have to start by being an Olympic athlete. Well, that's a good point. So I would, I want to throw out for both of you, if you were right now having an opportunity because we deal with so many small businesses, which just by definition, 500 employees or less. So I never think they're really small, but you know, what would be the top five things you would tell them right off the bat, general basic things. If you are walking into their environment right now, uh, with the purpose of securing them, and maybe they don't have a security team. Maybe they don't have, you know, they they have they have their basic computers, and that's pretty much it. What would be the five things you would probably lean forward and suggest? Well, I think number one, I get, we've we talked a lot about this, is that the greatest threat sits between the computer and the chair, right? So <laughs> I, I think securing the human, I think, should be first and foremost. That's, that's going to go a long ways in protecting your organization. General security hygiene and things like that as well would be number two. Uh, I know. What do we think about number three? <laughs> I think w- number three would be where I'd probably say understand what, what is critical to your business objective. Because not all systems are created equal and you don't have, not all systems have giant data stores. So what do you need to stay online? Those are the systems that you care about. And if you know which ones they are, you're, that's the biggest step to winning the battle. And four would be visibility, generating visibility, either it's getting logs uh, from your firewall, your endpoints, um, having that information available. So when there is an incident, you can actually investigate it and remediate. Mm -hmm. And I would add the last one is you're almost undoubtedly part of an industry, an industry sector. Join your local ISAC. Ah, that's an excellent one. Why should we join? Because then it's not just you. It's you and all of your (laughs) friends who do the same thing you do, whether that's retail or some other industry who are going to have similar threats, they're going to have similar profiles, you have similar expectations, and it gives you access to law enforcement folks that you probably wouldn't randomly meet on your own. Not everybody has an FBI agent on their, on their cell phone list, and you're going to be able to get access to those kind of resources through an ISAC. So if, if, if someone listening was saying, gosh, I wish I had a Ken in my life, um, or Jonna, exactly, <laughs> um, and they can't afford you guys. What's the next best step? Is it joining the association? Are there cost-effective resources that could help support the knowledge and the expertise that you guys bring to an organization? I would join the ISAC, but there are tons of free and locally available resources. There's lots of training available. Lots and lots of IT people will become really interested in security if you give them an opportunity. And they have the skills that just need a little bit of tuning to be super effective in your space. So uh, in, internal training will go a long, long way. And I also like uh, cloud-based infrastructure. I think mm-hmm. uh, if you have a cloud-first strategy, that can be helpful. Of course, there are risks associated with that, but 
you know, moving uh, infrastructure to something like Amazon Web Services. Um, there's a shared responsibility model there. You're not necessarily responsible for patching all those servers and systems and managing the hardware and things like that. They also provide a, a lot of security tools for your organization as well for monitoring and things like that. But and even more basic, they provide instant security. You hit a checkbox, secure this thing, and it does. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to know how to do it. They make that really easy. I mean, I'm smiling because, I mean, I'm my family loves Amazon. Every day there's a package coming through. So this is an easy transition when we think about that. Well, that's all we have for today on Cybercast Oregon. If you missed any part of the episode or want to listen again, you can find the show on prp.fm and iTunes under Cybercast Oregon. And as you listen and learn, stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook and prp.fm. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time. Have a great weekend. Cybercast Oregon is produced by Nastasia Voisin and hosted by Kedma O. Oh. Tech support by Austin Holm, editing and music by Alistair Lee. This episode is made possible by Mount Hood Community College Small Business Development Center. Explore their workshops, online courses, and more at mhcc.edu sbdc. Our show is produced in the studios of Portland Radio Project. Check out prp.fm for more information. You can find previous episodes, extra content, and previews by following us. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Cybercast Oregon. We love to hear from you, and thanks for listening.